Do you want to maximize your success with NCUA? Join Mark Trichel as he shares with you the insider's view on passing your exam with Flying Colors. The With Flying Colors podcast is sponsored by Credit Union Exam Solutions by Mark Trichel. If you would like to work directly with the Credit Union Exam Solutions team and receive support to optimize your results with NCUA so you save time and money, visit us at marktrichel.com to find out more. Hey everyone, this is Mark Treichel with another episode of With Flying Colors. It is March 26th at 10.20 a.m. on the East Coast. I am recording this Sunday morning. I have a few updates on some interesting articles in the Wall Street Journal and the Fox Business News as it relates to liquidity type events in the banking world as a result of Janet Yellen's comments, the aftermath of Silicon Valley Bank, et cetera. Our regular programming, tomorrow I've got a podcast that's pre-recorded, which will be with Rick Baum, who I've interviewed here twice on field of membership issues, and we will discuss NCUA's new proposal on field of membership. So that's more of a back-to-business type standard podcast. This is a, there are current events that are fascinating special edition podcast. And I have been listening to many, many podcasts and I, a lot of people do their legal disclosures saying this is not legal advice. This is not consulting advice. This is my opinion. And perhaps I'll start doing that at the beginning or the end of my podcast. But any event, any event, this is my opinion. Any actions you take relative to it are your own actions, et cetera, et cetera. All right. So interesting time in sports. You got March Madness going on. Tons of upsets in March Madness. And the other thing that's about to happen is it's about to be opening day for Major League Baseball. And while I was out listening to a couple of podcasts this morning, I was thinking about baseball. Nerd alert here. If you're not a baseball fan, you might want to skip the next 30 seconds, maybe 60 seconds. But I was thinking about Major League Baseball and I was thinking about the designated hitter. And I was thinking about 50 years ago when I was a 10-year-old kid, and I tracked this down after I came in and, and, and looked up the actual date this happened. But it was the 1973 season that the American League got rid of pitchers batting and introduced the designated hitter. The first designated hitter to bat was Ron Bloomberg of the New York Yankees, and he walked on five pitches, according to Wikipedia. Why do I bring this up? Well, at the time, I was a huge baseball fan. I was a huge Minnesota Twins fan. And since that point in time, too many home runs, too many strikeouts, too long of games. They've changed some rules in crazy ways. So I'm not a big baseball fan. However, I do still listen to the radio and listen to baseball games because it's always been a soothing background for me. And I did that when I was a little kid. So when I was 10 years old, the first year of the designated hitter, I didn't know that there was a designated hitter. And I went to sleep the first night of this, the first night of the season, which in researching it, it was that night was April 6th, 1973. The Minnesota twins were in Oakland to play the Oakland athletics. So the game came on late. I was in Minnesota listening to the Twins on WCCO. And by the way, where every broadcast started with a 
no broadcast, rebroadcast, or retransmission is permitted without the express written for consent of WCCO, the Minnesota Twins, and Major League Baseball. That's how frequently I listened to their games because I knew how they started every one of their broadcasts. In any event, Minnesota Twins were playing, and I'm laying there falling asleep, gets to the third inning, and I'm waiting for their pitcher, Burt Blylevin, to bat. And Blylevin was a great pitcher. He got the great nickname from ESPN of Burt B. Home Blylevin. But again, nerd alert here. The Twins did not have Burt Blylevin bat because it was the first game of the designated hitter. And I remember falling asleep uh, at some juncture thinking, I don't think Blylevin ever batted. Got up, read the Minneapolis Star Tribune, and they had a story there about how the designated hitter had taken off, how it was such a great success because the Twins were able to bat Tony Oliva in the cleanup spot. And in the Twins' first designated hitter at bat, Tony Oliva hit a three-run homer off a catfish hunter. Anyway, not a fan of, of the designated hitter, but this has now been in place 50 years in the American League. It was two years ago the National League brought it in. And why do I bring it up? I got spring fever. I've got baseball fever. And I'm looking forward to listening to the Twins on the radio. And uh, rules change. Regulations change. Maybe this is why I'm bringing it up. Rules change. Regulations change. And time marches on. And that's what I think will probably happen in the arena of liquidity, in the arena of share deposit insurance, et cetera. Where, what rules they'll come up with, I'm not exactly sure. But with that, I'm going to jump into a couple of articles here. And one of them to start off with is from the Wall Street Journal. The editorial board, again, has an interesting article about Janet Yellen. And it says, Janet Yellen's blurred lines on bank depositors. Are all deposits insured or not? Only she seems to know. Now, I had some highlights of another article where she had spoke to the American Bankers Association, implying that smaller institutions could get coverage if, the, if it could be determined. Smaller institutions could lead to a systemic event. And in re reading through this article this morning, there's a couple of <laughs> interesting tidbits that, that it reminded me of that I've made reference to, but it clarified a couple of things. But anyway, the opinion board from the Washington, excuse me, the, the Wall Street Journal, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen on Thursday walked back her comments from the day before that walked back her remarks the day before about providing a de facto guarantee on all U.S. bank deposits. Who's on first? Another baseball reference. The administration's mixed signals are becoming another threat to the financial institution. The essence of financial stability is market confidence, which requires clear, consistent rules. But Ms. Yellen is muddling the rules and the administration's message. On Tuesday, she said protecting uninsured depositors over 250,000 could be warranted if smaller institutions suffer deposit runs that pose contagion, risk of contagion. By the way, she said that at a trade association group where she wanted to calm down the people who were complaining about that, in my opinion. Yet on Wednesday, she told the Senate that she had not considered or discussed blanket insurance or guarantees of deposits. She knows she doesn't have the authority to guarantee all deposits without approval from Congress, which may explain her flip-flop. 
After bank stocks tanked, Ms. Yellen did another U-turn and told the, the House on Thursday that we would be prepared to take additional actions if warranted. So now no one is sure whether uninsured depositors will be covered other than at the giant banks that have been deemed too big to fail. Some history is relevant, relevant here. So this is the part that reminded me about some of these nuances I had referred for, but provides a little bit more detail and clarity. Congress in 1991 barred the FDIC from protecting uninsured depositors unless Treasury, in consultation with the president, invoked a systemic risk exception with two-thirds support of the FDIC Board of Directors and the Federal Reserve Board. The FDIC, during the thick of the 2008 financial crisis, broadly interpreted this exception and set up a temporary program that guaranteed non-interest-bearing deposits in transaction accounts. But the 2010 Dodd-Frank Act purposefully narrowed regulators' discretion to do so again by limiting the systemic risk exception to institutions under FDIC receivership. So that clarifies a couple things I had mentioned before. From 2008 to 2012, checking accounts for banks that had no interest paid were guaranteed. In, in As a result of the Dodd-Frank Act, they changed that saying you could only do it if, if it was in receivership, which is also why in order to guarantee those deposits, they had to conserve or take over SVB, then they had to take over signature. So that provides a little bit of clarity on, on the actions taken, what now, two, Two, two weeks ago? Treasury hasn't clearly explained why protecting uninsured depositors at Silicon Valley or Signature Bank was necessary to prevent a systemic risk. The administration ostensibly feared more bank runs. No doubt there would have been some turmoil, but the example of rich depositors taking a modest haircut would have been a useful lesson. I tend to agree with that in, in many aspects, by the way. Investors and depositors are more discerning than regulators think. Not all small and mid-sized banks suffered large deposit outflow or stock sell-offs after SVB collapsed. Same for credit unions, other than the reference to stocks. Those hit hardest had a large share of uninsured and fickle deposits, high interest rate duration risk, and heavy exposure to tech and commercial real estate. The Independent Community Bankers of America said its members didn't report widespread withdrawals in response to the SVB and signature failures, and many saw an increase in deposits. Editorial comment, same thing was happening in credit unions. Larger depositors probably spread their money around to multiple banks to minimize risk. Community banks tend to maintain higher capital levels, which should make them safer. Same goes for credit unions, by the way. Credit unions' capital is higher than bank capital. A redistribution of deposits to sound banks would be good for the financial system, even if it stressed weaker banks. Federal home loan banks the Federal Reserve discount window and the Fed's new bank term funding program provide otherwise healthy banks with liquidity to weather panics like this one. But mid-sized banks have been lobbying, lobbying regulators for a blanket guarantee of all deposits. News reports earlier this week said Treasury staff were reviewing whether they had emergency authority to do so without the consent of Congress, such as by using the Exchange Stabilization Fund. 
All of this makes Ms. Yellen's denials in her Senate testimony appear even less credible. Okay, so editorial comment. They did it under the systemic risk elements of, of the law in 2008 to 2012. Congress didn't like how they did it, so they said you have to, you can only do it if you take a credit union or a bank over. And now it looks like Treasury is studying if they have another law that they could use to do that or, or not. Anyway, this is just his opinion that they heard that. She has now created the expectation that all deposits at all banks will be covered, but nobody knows what the administration will do since Ms. Yellen also said Wednesday that regulators will decide on a case-by-case basis. This means it will be up to political discretion, which is the worst of all worlds for confidence. Regulators didn't guarantee uninsured deposits at the Silvergate Bank after it failed, no doubt because of its crypto ties. But Ms. Yellen on Wednesday suggested regulators might protect those at other small banks if they deem it necessary to prevent contagion. The Dodd-Frank systemic risk exception that was intended to constrain regulators has become meaningless. We will see if that's indeed what, what this leads to. Such progressives as Senator Elizabeth Warren are now calling for broader protections of rich depositors, which they want to use as an excuse to impose more regulations that will enshrine to too big to fail for more banks. What the banking system needs most now is market confidence and discipline. Mixed signals from regulators are undermining both. All right, that's the end of that article. And boy, if you have a subscription to the Washington, if you have a subscription to the Wall Street Journal, the comments on the Wall Street Journal are always quite interesting. I'm not going to go into them here, but check them out in this article because it's quite quite interesting. The second article I want to make reference to is one that I was actually quoted in, and it is from. Fox Business News. I got a communication from Rec Dumas, who I enjoyed chatting with this week. And she ran an article at foxbusiness.com called How Safe Are Credit Unions Amid Bank Turmoil? The article states that the failure of SVB, Silicon Valley Bank, and other institutions in recent, recent weeks. So Okay. All right. I didn't want that to pop up. The, the failure... The article goes on to say the failure of Silicon Valley Bank and other institutions in recent weeks sparked a sparked fear that contagion could catch on, leading many depositors to move their funds to major banks for safety. However, two regulatory experts say credit unions are actually safer place for folks to put their money than traditional banks, pointing to how the institutions, which largely cater to individuals rather than companies, are much less vulnerable to bank runs or liquidity issues. Credit unions, which are owned by their members, have their own regulator, the National Credit Union Administration, which is very much like FDIC. The NCUA insures depositors' funds up to the same threshold as FDIC, 250000 Just like banks, the deposits above the 250 k mark at credit unions are uninsured. But unlike banks, credit unions do not have the same level of risk exposure to the factors that took down SVB and other troubled lenders. Mark Treichel, who spent 33 years at the NCUA and served as executive director of the agency, points out that the recent bank runs have been driven by uninsured deposits, and it is substantially less likely for that to happen to a credit union. Treichel, who now assists credit unions with the, 
with the NCUA via his company, Credit Union Exam Solutions, points out that the banks that have failed recently, namely SVB, all held a large percentage of uninsured deposits with SVB's uninsured deposits upwards of a whopping 90%. When several uninsured depositors became alarmed over SBV, SVB's liquidity issues, many scrambled to pull out their money, causing regulators to step in and stop the bleeding. Treichel says data showed that the large, largest 800 or so banks in the U.S. have an average of roughly 36% of their deposits uninsured. However, even the largest credit union with more than a billion dollars in assets only have around 9% of their deposits uninsured. One other stat, by the way, I mentioned to Ms. Dumas was that 20% or one in five large banks have more than 50% of their deposits uninsured and that zero big credit unions and using a billion as big zero credit unions over a billion dollars have more than 50% of their deposits uninsured. And I believe only one is in the 40% area and only three had more than 30%. And again, the average is 9% for a billion and over and 9% uninsured for all credit unions. So significantly different makeup of deposits, making it significantly less likely of something draconian happen with a run. All right. So anyway, I had the pleasure of chatting with Brett Dumas. I look forward to assisting her with articles down the road. And, and I, I appreciate how she quoted me accurately in this article. All right. One more article. I also, let's see, here we go. Uh, one more article. I also was introduced and had a chat with an author from the Wall Street Journal, Andrew Ackerman. And while I was not quoted in his article that he wrote, along with Angel Jung and Hannah Mao from the Wall Street Journal, this is another fascinating article, which is called How Bank Oversight Failed, The Economy Changed, and Regulators Didn't. The subtitle is Overseers Paid Insufficient Heed to Risks of Falling Bond Values and Fleeing Deposits, Social Media and Selling by Smartphone Made That Worse. All right. So this article, as I've mentioned in some of my previous podcasts, when things fail, like SVB and Signature Bank, people point fingers and the Dems point at the Republicans, the Republicans point at the Dems, and everybody points at the regulators. Occasionally, they actually point to the institution that had bad management as well. And we'll hear a little bit about that here in some of the highlights from this article. So the article says, on March 8th, Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank were both, according to public disclosures, well capitalized the optimal level of health by federal regulatory standards. I'm going to reread that. On March 8th, Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank were both, according to public disclosures, well capitalized, the optimal level of health by federal regulatory standards. Days later, both failed. The question we were all asking ourselves over the first week was, how did this happen? Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell said Wednesday. Interviews with past and current regulators and examiners, bankers and people close to the failed bank banks point to a combination of fast shifts in the economy, plus regulators who adjusted only slowly, if at all, to those changes. 
Even when supervisors spotted problems, they didn't move quickly or decisively enough to stop them from snowballing into a crisis. As interest rates surged after years of quiescence, think I got that word right, quiescence, regulators didn't fully anticipate the hit banks would take to the value of their bond holdings. The Fed, as late as May 2021, expected the era of ultra-low rates to continue. Not until late 2022, when rates had already risen substantially, did regulators warn SVB that its modeling of interest rate risk was inadequate. A second factor was failure to appreciate the danger and bank dependence on deposits above 250K federal insurance limit. Banks had come to depend more on such deposits. Regulators acknowledged they didn't stress such a concern because the big deposits were from SVBs and signatures, quote, core customers. Uh, Credit union folks, I'm sure you're the core customers, core deposits. That, 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 that that's what they're referencing there, who it was thought would stick around. Yes, core deposits are sticky until they're not. In fact, deposits fled far faster than ever happened before, aided by both social media fueled fear and by technology that allowed people to move vast sums with a few taps on a smartphone. Smartphone, SVB showed Quote, classic, classic red flags for bank examination 101, said Aaron Klein, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Finding problems late and moving slowly is a recipe for supervisory failure. It sure looks like that's what happened here. A third factor was the nature of supervision itself had changed, becoming more bureaucratic and process oriented just when banks, just when banking was moving faster. Examiners raised problems with SVB, but didn't escalate their concerns to formal enforcement actions before a run began. The supervisory process has not evolved for rapid decision making. It is focused on consistency over speed, said Eric Rosengren, former president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston. In a fast moving situation, the system is not as well designed to force change quickly. Banking regulators will spend months, if not years, getting to the bottom of what happened. The Fed, FDIC, and Treasury have for now limited the contagion by guaranteeing all SBB and signature deposits and extending additional support to all banks. Editorial comment, that additional support is phantom support. And I cite the previous discussion about Yellen saying, we got you, we don't got you, we got you, we don't got you. Mr. Powell has announced an internal Fed review of what went wrong to report by May. Lawmakers plan to hold hearings beginning next week. So that would be starting March 27th tomorrow or today when you'll get this episode posted on Monday. Representatives for SVB now under FDIC control and its former chief executive declined to comment. A spokesman for the New York Community Bank Corp, whose subsidiary purchased Signature's assets, declined to comment. SVB was a smaller bank that grew rapidly in the past several years, along with its tech clientele. Its principal regulators were the Fed in Washington, the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco, and the California's Department of Financial Protection and Innovation. 
Examiners had found issues at SVB in the past. In 2019, the Fed alerted management to problems with the bank's risk controls. Last summer, the Fed warned about flaws in liquidity and risk management and governance, according to people familiar with the matter. Ultimately, SVB was placed in a 4M restriction, which meant it couldn't make acquisitions, one of the people said. No, 4M restriction, not exactly sure what that would equate to for credit unions, but if you're a code three or worse, you tend to not be considered for many, if any, merger situations. So that probably was a subtle reference to their camel code, which I'm guessing might have been downgraded to a three, but that's pure conjecture. On my part, the alerts came in the form of matters requiring attention and matters requiring immediate attention, in effect, supervisory memos urging, but not compelling action. So editorial comment, I don't necessarily agree with how they frame that up. Matters requiring immediate attention and matters requiring attention. Requiring means it's required. It doesn't mean that you should do it. It means that they must do it. It's not done in the manner of a cease and desist, but I believe that may be a bit of a mischaracterization mischaracterization of the exam. By 2022, the key issue for both the economy and banks was inflation, which jumped above 5% after decades around 2% a Fed that until mid-2021 signaled it would would hold rates near zero for years has in the past 12 months raised them at the sharpest pace since the early 1980s. Rising rates cause bond prices to fall, especially bonds that don't mature for many years, which some banks, including SVB, had favored for their additional yield. By the end of 2022, that left such banks with big unrealized losses, something the FDIC began warning about in the second half of the year. A fall in the value of banks' bond holdings could, in theory, reduce their capital, the cushion between assets and liabilities that absorb losses. In 1991, Congress instructed regulators to devise a formula for measuring the effect of interest rates on capital. But in 1996, the Fed, FDIC, and the OCC said that the burden, costs, and potential incentives of implementing a standardized measure and explicit capital treatment currently outweigh the potential benefits. Instead, they would work with the industry to encourage efforts to improve risk measurement techniques. The effects of the effect of changes in interest rates is one of the things bankers are instructed to look at. So editorial comment, same for credit unions. It's part of the risk management as it's also part of the net economic value test, which has its own flaws, but it's why NCUA slash requires credit unions, particularly large credit unions, to have robust asset liability management and income simulations. The Fed didn't prioritize interest rate risk in some of its recent regulatory exercises. Uh, That would be a reference to the stress tests that they do for too big to fail. By the way, NCUA generally piggybacks off of those for the Office of National Exam and Supervision credit unions, those that are systemically important to the NCUSIF, which had previously been those over 10 billion, which has now transitioned to 15 billion. However, if you are between 10 and 15, you will still need to do those stress tests that, again, are based on what the Fed does for significantly important banks. This year, the Fed, in its stress tests, are asked banks to show how they would be affected by a rise in inflation 
But that scenario was released after inflation had hit its recent peak, and the results wouldn't have had any practical impact on banks' operations. That reminds me of a quote I saw in a recent article that said regulators, and again, I was a regulator for 33 years, so um, I'm just saying what I heard. It says regulators could have a focus on the last crisis often instead of the current crisis. So because of inflation, now they're having banks to stress for inflation. Guess what? You think at the next the next stress test coming up in for what they'll have to do for 2024, they're going to require stress testing for interest rate risk. You bet they will. By 2022, SVB was large enough to be assigned its own Fed supervisory team, according to a former Fed examiner. By the way, I had mentioned that previously, I indicated they probably had resonant examiners that only focus on that institution. Now, NCUA had had some challenges or some perceived challenges with examiners and the corporate credit unions that collapsed. 2008, 2009, 2010, and no longer has resident examiners at any institutions, uh, editorial comment. As the bank approached $250 billion in assets, bank staff scrambled to prepare for the heightened regulatory scrutiny that this threshold would entail, according to people familiar with the matter. Meeting with Fed examiners became more intense, said a former employee who worked in risk management. By the way, I believe I saw some stories that I wasn't able to verify that their head of their risk management program was departed, I'll put it that way, and had a payout, and that that position was vacant when they were taken over. Some bank employees knew that higher interest rates put SVB's bond portfolio at risk and tried to push executives to make a change, according to people familiar with the situation. Company management, though, effectively bet that interest rates would decline. The bank, in a presentation of second quarter results last year, told investors it was shifting focus to manage down rate sensitivity. Some employees have wondered in the wake of SBB's collapse why the Fed's oversight hadn't forced management to take immediate action. Last fall, the San Francisco Fed met with senior leadership of the bank and highlighted problems with the bank's handle on interest rate risk in a rising rate environment, people familiar with the matter said. By the way, in an examination, examiners can use finesse. They can they can cajole you. They can try and encourage you to take action. But someone actually taking the action to purge assets at a loss, uh, they're unrealized losses that you can see from this article that SBB thought rates were going to go back down. And so why would... Putting, putting on my SVB hat, why did they? Why would they want to sell these investments if they just held they could recover them and, and everything, everything would resolve itself? People tend to not want to sell, not want to acknowledge that they made a mistake. And, and short of requiring them to do so, um, they won't do it. And in the same token, the bank regulators are very careful to, when they require something, to have the official authority to do it. So these examiners probably felt they were doing as much as they could at the time. Now, that's probably a failure at higher levels at FDIC. If anything, I wouldn't necessarily blame blame the lowest level who were trying to deal with it as best as the tools that they were provided allowed them to. The supervisory team was apparently very much engaged with the bank and was repeatedly, repeatedly was escalating, Mr. Powell said at a press conference Wednesday. So that's consistent with what I just said. 
Over the decades, bank supervision has evolved to put priority on consistency, fairness, and transparency rather than speed as barriers to interest banking Interstate, as barriers to interstate banking fell in the 1990s, federal regulators sought to formalize rules across straight lines, bringing more decision-making to Washington. By the way, similar to at NCUA, consistency was something that the agency strived for, came out the National Supervision Policy Manual, as opposed to allowing regional directors to issue their own examiner guidance, and it did centralize things, which can slow down changes when changes might be needed. Supervision became even more centralized and bureaucratic after 2007 to 2009 financial crisis and passage of the 2010 Dodd-Frank financial regulation law, said Mr. Rosengren, who was the president of the Boston Fed from 07 to 2021, and before that was the head of bank supervision. Although examiners frequently alert banks to matters requiring attention or immediate attention, forcing them to change course with a cease and desist order or a formal enforcement action takes several more steps. As for NCUA, a, cease and de a temporary cease and desist order can be issued by the regional director, so it would have to go up several levels, but ultimately a final cease and desist order needs to be approved by the NCUA board. And thus that does slow things down and is particularly challenging with a run because a run by definition happens very quickly. So it's one of the rarest of challenges that institutions see and that regulators see, but it's also one of the most difficult to predict. And because it's difficult to predict, it makes it harder to move fast. Like I've said, liquidity doesn't matter until it matters. And then it's the only thing that, matter, that matters. It's like breathing. Your oxygen is gone. And all you can think of is where do I get the oxygen? And institutions die that way. The goal is not to surprise anybody. It's to get change over time, said Mr. Rosengren, now a scholar at the MIT Golub Center of Finance for Policy. One FDIC official said problems rarely escalate into cease and desist orders unless there's a long-term pattern of non-compliance. He said that absent some emergency, which wasn't apparent with SBB until it was too late, it can be challenging for supervisors to push back against management if the bank is in compliance with all of its capital and liquidity requirements as SBB was. So they were well capitalized. If you're well capitalized and you can meet the liquidity requirements, again, it's hard for examiners to push on that. The other thing is a cease and desist order is, is going to be a public uh, issuance. And that in and of itself could trigger a run under certain scenarios. So a cease and desist order, unless made private, and there are rare situations for credit unions where they can be made private, can in and of itself help create a liquidity issue. Politics also began to intervene by 2018 with the financial crisis well in the rearview mirror. Banks, including SVB, began lobbying for lighter treatment, finding a sympathetic ear from Republicans and some Democrats. That year, Congress raised the threshold for the Fed's most vigorous oversight to $250 billion in assets from $50 billion. So, you know, they're uh, the sympathetic ear from Republicans and some Democrats. So that's where the D's are blaming the R's because the R's were most of the votes that made that change. The Fed also tailored its regulations to lighten the burden on less complex firms. In March 2021, under Vice Chair of Supervision Randall Quarles, 
the Fed issued what it called guidance on guidance. Hadn't editorial comment. I hadn't heard that term before, but it makes me smile. Guidance on guidance that said that supervisory guidance, a common way for federal regulators to explain to banks and examiners what was expected of them, didn't have the force of law. Editorial comment. Now, it has been my understanding that guidance by FDIC, if they take public comment on it, does hold the force of law. Now, NCUA's guidance does not have public comment, so the so interest is, interested parties do not have the opportunity to provide their input. So guidance is indeed guidance. NCUA will typically use the hook of safety and soundness to try and tie guidance to the law so that it is enforceable, but it's a delicate dance in that arena. But the concept of guidance on guidance is fascinating. After that, it became more of a battle to get a bank to agree to changes according to a former big bank examiner or the San Francisco Fed who said the move created 10,000 more steps. Mr. Quarles disputed that either the 2018 law or the 2021 guidance played any part in SVB's trouble. Editorial comment, I would agree with that. The purpose of this guy's guidance, he said, was to strengthen supervision by ensuring that examiners' actions were grounded in law and better able to withstand a court challenge. It's difficult for supervisors to take formal action in the absence of clear proof a bank is in danger and SVB continued to meet all its necessary capital ratios. Again, capital is king. If you have strong capital, that gives you better negotiating opportunities with NCUA and FDIC. And the flip side is it makes it harder for liquidity events to prevent it by strong supervision by NCUA and or FDIC. A bank's bond holdings have to be carried at market value on its books if they are classified as trading or available for sale. In 2022, SBB reclassified a chunk of its bonds as held to maturity, where they didn't have to be carried at market value. SBB had also availed itself an option made available by the Fed in 2013 to not let losses on available for sale securities flow through to its regulatory capital level. Aha, that's how SVB had enough capital because they called them, because they followed this rule that that said, yes, you need to look at it, but it doesn't impact your regulatory capital. That SVB's capital, if market mark to market was lower than its reported capital mattered only if the bank had to sell bonds such as to meet depositor redemptions. Since the financial crisis, banks had steadily sought more funding from corporate and individual deposits as opposed to tapping funds from financial markets, which were seen as more volatile and unreliable. A growing share of aggregate bank deposits was uninsured. Regulators had at times cited the potential risks associated with uninsured deposits and were weighing asking banks to issue more long-term debt. But the issue wasn't high on their list of worries about the financial system. Data included in the Fed's twice-yearly financial stability report last November showed uninsured deposits had steadily risen as a share of financial system funding with the potential to leave quickly. Yet the report didn't cite this as a risk. It did observe approvingly that big banks had tamped down their reliance on volatile financial markets for short-term funds. Not only were roughly 90% of SVB's deposits uninsured, 
They were unusual, unusually concentrated in companies and people linked to technology and venture capital. Some deposits were in the hundreds of millions of dollars or were kept in the bank as part of an agreement between a venture capital firm and SVB. Ideally, when bank examiners pointed out problems, the bank's management would agree and voluntarily comply. But former examiners for the San Francisco Fed said that a bank might involve its lawyers if it didn't agree with the examiner's findings, treating the process as a court case rather than a routine oversight matter. matter. If examiners thought the bank should prepare for a scenario such as rapid growth, soaring interest rates, and abrupt loss of deposits, as later happened to SVB, examiners would be hobbled by the absence of explicit Explicit regulatory guidance calling for such preparations, another examiner said. The bank could point out such a combination of events had never happened before, and preparing for it would hurt shareholders' returns, this former examiner said. Signature Bank lacked SVB's bond exposure, but it shared its dependence on uninsured deposits. Its regulators didn't raise this as an issue, according to former Representative Barney Frank co-sponsor of the Dodd-Frank Law. Regulators from the FDIC and the New York State Department of Financial Services met with Signature's Bank Board on February 15th. So the regulators met with, met with him on February 15th and didn't say anything about, we're worried that your uninsured deposits are going to fly, said Mr. Frank, who was a director. There was no alarm, no warning at the meeting that you guys are in trouble or this is a problem. Within weeks, a run on signatures deposits prompted regulators to seize the bank. The FDIC said examiners raised serious concerns in written and verbal communication, including less than satisfactory rating for liquidity management to signatures management team at least five years before it experienced a liquidity crisis. So less than satisfactory ratings for liquidity, I'm gonna say that's a code three, in liquidity or worse, probably a three, just a guess. Candid discussions with its board about deficiencies in liquidity, deposit volatility and corporate governance occurred as recently as February 15th. The New York Department of Financial Institutions declined to comment. What none of the regulators or bankers anticipated was how fast depositors could flee. This part is fascinating of this article, which appears to be a new reality in the age of smartphone apps and social media. In past times, deposit outflows were modulated by how fast tellers could count out cash or ATMs could be refilled. Customers who wanted to close their accounts or move large sums had to visit their branch. That gave regulators and executives time to craft a plan to calm anxious customers. The newfound ability to move money with a smartphone eliminated that grace period. Editorial comment, when I was a director of special actions on the West Coast, we had a credit union that's no longer in existence, did survive for many years after our assistance. However, they had had some a situation where several of top management had to be taken out by, by the credit union due to a fraudulent situation. They were worried about a run. NCUA guaranteed a line of credit with the corporate. An effort was made to bring cash in uh, for the next week. So there was an opportunity. What I'm saying here is here, I totally agree with the old ways of dealing with liquidity, but they brought in substantial cash 
in the event of a liquidity situation, and it turned out to be a whole hum event. But today, with phone apps that can have me close my account in instant, in an instant, it's a different world. In past times, deposit outflows were modulated by how fast tellers could count out cash or ATMs could be refilled. Customers who wanted to close their accounts or move large sums had to visit their branch. That gave regulators and executives time to craft a plan to calm anxious customers. The newfound ability to move money with a smartphone eliminated that grace period. FDIC officials are discussing how to manage public confidence as social media expands, people's ability to electronically panic, quote unquote. That's a new hashtag, electronically panic. A person familiar with the talks said, the speed of the run is very different from what we've seen in the past, Mr. Powell said Wednesday. And it does kind of suggest that there's a need for possible regulatory and supervisory changes just because supervision and regulation need to keep up with what's happening in the world. All right, that's the end of the article. I'm losing my voice again. Fascinating discussions here. Great article from Andrew Ackerman and others. Um, Powell hinting at potentially new regulatory and supervisory changes. One last story. I remember hearing when there was a big fraud that happened in credit unions uh, back just before I came into credit unions. I, I started in credit unions in 1986. I believe this is, was in 1985. And there was a large fraud at a credit union. And Senator Jeff, former Senator Roger Jepson had to testify before Congress or some subcommittee of Congress, and they asked about whether or not NCUA had training on fraud in light of this. And he said, yes, we do. He came back, and the first thing he said to staff was, we need a fraud class, and that was developed, and it was one of the classes I took in my first year as an examiner at NCUA. Again, that first part is hearsay, but there was a class, and it was developed that year, so it's probably true. All right, that's it. We, again, tomorrow, I'll have a normal podcast with, with Rick Mama on Field of Membership, and I will continue to have occasional podcasts on the ever-changing mood of regulators as, a, as it relates to liquidity, SVB, uninsured shares, and the fallout from that that could trickle down to credit unions. This is Mark Treichel signing off with Flying Colors. Thank you for joining us on this episode of With Flying Colors. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app to hear future episodes where subject matter experts of all varieties will provide tips on how to achieve success with NCUA. If you would like to learn more about how we assist credit unions, check out our services at marktreichel.com. 